What's going on, everyone? We are back on the CCA podcast, and we are here with with a great guest, along with Chris and myself. And we're going to talk to you about some really cool and educational topics, including electronics, so marine electronics, uh, with none other than Jim Hendricks from the CCA board. And we want to make sure that you guys know that you're going to get a lot out of these podcasts. So stick around, enjoy the rest of the content we have coming in the, in the future. And uh, we got some great guests. So thank you all for tuning in and we'll dive right into it. Absolutely, Kevin. Thank you so much. Jim, what's going on, man? Good to see you. Hey, it's good to be here. Great to be here in San Diego, enjoying the sunshine. Only one thing would be better, I'd be getting out and going fishing. I know. Yeah. I know. Well, there's, they're starting to hit it. Just this past weekend, they got their first bluefin, the yep. Old Glory. I saw that. It's exciting. And yeah. the yellowtail are biting today locally. Oh, my uh-huh. goodness. Nice. Just happened. Couple yeah, minutes we, we might lose you, Kevin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Run away right now, <laughs> Jim. By any chance, is your skiff like out here? Let's let's go. I don't, there's a lot of skiffs out there, but not mine. Not right now. <laughs> awesome. Well, I am super super stoked to have Jim on the podcast. Jim, let's get started here, man. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you serve as uh, a marketing committee uh, board member, uh, along with the um, along with being a part of the state board for CCA California. Tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. Once again, it's good to be here. Yeah, I, I, I'm on the board of directors for CCA Cal. I really enjoy it. It is an incredible group of guys and women, and it's an incredible organization. I've been serving, I think it's for about two years now on the board of directors. I also serve on the marketing committee with you, Chris, and with you, Kevin. We're all members of that, as well as on the governmental affairs committee. Um, it's, it's great work. It's important work. And I just think that um, anglers need to be involved in fisheries, in conservation, and fighting for sport fishing rights. It's terribly important. I got my start in this field in, uh, uh, once again, you have to do the math, but (laughs) it was around 1988, 1989, I became involved in um, the fight to ban uh, set gill nets, inshore set gill nets off the California coast. Uh, and I served with some really incredible people on that, on the, what we called the Gillnet Committee. It was, Bill Shedd was on the Gillnet Committee. Uh, Pat McDonald was on the Gillnet wow, Committee. Man. A whole bunch of really important names, uh, really legends in this industry right now. We pretty much uh, butt our heads against the wall trying to go the legislative route and banning gillnets off the California coast. And then finally, one day, we said, you know, we're not doing this anymore we are going to go to the initiative process. And that resulted in uh, Proposition 132, uh, which passed, uh, we got onto the ballot, which was an effort just right doing that. And amazingly, it passed. And we ended ended up making Proposition 132 a state constitutional amendment banning inshore set gill nets uh, within three miles of the California coast. It's probably, aside from my family, is probably the proudest accomplishment of my life, and I hope that uh, I hope that we can continue that good effort uh, through organizations like CCA Cal. The only, by the way, I'll say it's the only organization right now rep- in the state representing the rights of anglers. And I, if we could just get, you know, if we could just get every licensed angler to join CCA Cal, we would be an unstoppable force of nature. I, I oh, yeah. firmly believe in that. Uh, we're, we're strong now. We fight the good fight, and we've had some incredible victories lately. But we need everybody and all anglers to support CCA California. Uh, so, The importance of gillnets being taken out from the nearshore areas is so massive. People like myself nowadays, we still feel the effect. We're always going to feel the effect of those being banned because now we get to catch white sea bass, which was a huge targeted uh, um, market. Uh, for quite a while, and now look at the resurgence of that animal. I mean, it's beautiful. They, they have just come back along with uh, stocking programs um, like hubs. I mean, we that that has just been a wonderful um, amendment, and it's just been great to to see that um, it's paying off nowadays too. So yeah, imagine I, how many more things we can all right. be a part of. You know, I remember when I first started fishing in my in my. I've had a few boats, but when I first started fishing off the coast. To catch a white sea bass was a, like a news-making event. 
Right. Now, you and you never even thought, oh, we're going to go out and target white sea bass. Now you can go out and actually say, we're going to go catch, we're going to go target white sea bass. And, well, if you're lucky, you can actually, you can actually catch them. Sport yeah. boats do that all the time. That's sea right. bass specials. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So that, didn't, that did not occur until, really, till those gill nets got out of our inshore waters. And now we're fortunate enough to have a, a thriving population of white sea bass. One of my favorite fish. That's awesome. Well, speaking of white sea bass, you also just got uh, appointed to the uh, ORHAB advisory panel, right? That's right. That's, I think it, was, it happened about a year ago. So mm-hmm. we're this panel basically um, advises uh, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife on uh, regulations regarding the, the hatchery program. And uh, it's important work. Right now, we just finished... One of the most important steps that we have uh, accomplished is developing a science advisory committee, science advisory team, I think, or committee. Anyway, we actually came up with a number of scientists to advise uh, the hatchery on white sea bass and presented it to uh, the director, Chuck Bonham. Mm -hmm. And he not only, I think he was grateful, but he must have been because he accepted all of our recommendations. And oh, so great. we now have a science advisory committee in place to advise the the, sea, uh, the hub SeaWorld uh, hatchery. So another an, another proud accomplishment, uh, and and one that I think uh, could lead to even better white sea bass fishing going forward. Wow, even better than it is now, and it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Um, so the uh, the amount of accomplishments that you know we have uh, listed for you extends much into writing. Um, can you give us an overview and the extension of your career so far in writing in this industry? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's a long one, so I don't know how much time we've got. We've got all <laughs> That's why it's a podcast. It's a lot. <laughs> so I, uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier before we got started here, I uh, am a lifelong fisherman. I started when I, was, uh, when I caught my first fish, and a lot of people... A lot of a lot of anglers, their first fish is a bluegill or a crappie mm-hmm. or a perch or you know something like that. Well, my first fish was uh, was a bonito. There you go. Mm. And it was was it on a bluegill setup? <laughs> I, I think we were out trolling for them in a little private boat. So I've always been a private boat angler uh, since then. So, uh, but we caught that and I was just hooked for life. And that was at age five. I always wanted to. It, from that point forward, I wanted to draw fish. I wanted to go fish. I wanted to write about fish. I wanted to do everything fishing. Uh, so when I finished, and of course back then, when I was in high school, it wasn't really cool to be a fisherman. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> like nowadays, it's you know, yeah. it's cool to be a fisherman. It's cool to be a fisherman now. I don't know what happened, but uh, uh, maybe it's because different people are fishing now than me. But anyway, the uh, I decided to go to college. I, I liked writing about it, and I figured, you know, I didn't really have a science bend, so I couldn't go study marine biology. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to. Uh, study writing and journalism, and I'm gonna I'm gonna de- dedicate myself to writing about fishing, sport fishing, uh, and that's what I did. So I went to I went to, through the Cal State University system, got my degree in journalism, and within two or three years after getting my degree, I was um, writing about fishing, not for a magazine so much, but through the marketing aspect. I went to work for an ad agency. I was an ad man writing about uh, fishing tackle for an agency that handled, it was called Bear Advertising at the time, and we handled uh, pen reels and Furuno Marine Electronics and Suzuki Outboards and a whole host of outdoor recreation marine companies. A little bit of everything. A little bit, and it was so much fun because, I mean, you know, working in an ad agency is a crazy life, but it was really a lot of fun. Is Is it anything at all like that show Mad Men? Yeah, a little too much. <laughs> Sometimes, uh, it really is. Not, I, you know, I think nowadays it's not, but back then it was. There was, you know, there were the three martini lunches and things like that that I could never, never do and still work. So, but it was fun, and we got to do a lot of fishing when we were. Uh, we would do uh, editor trips for Suzuki Marine, uh, and we would take them uh, out fishing with pros who had. Uh, Suzuki outboards on their boats, and we would go all over the country. We'd fish in uh, the Gulf of Mexico out of Venice, Louisiana. We'd fish up in Maine out of uh, the Carolinas. A lot of fishing in Florida. Uh, Up in Washington State, we'd go salmon fishing up in the San Juan Islands. So I got a real taste of... 
that I am a Southern California angler, and I love all those. I love the yellowtail and the white sea bass and the halibut and the rockfish and albacore when we had them. But I, it gave me a taste of what fishing was like in other parts of the country. And that was a wonderful, wonderful experience and gave me, because the, the techniques are so different mm. wherever you go. You know, if you go fish out of New Jersey, fishing for bluefish, it's, it's a way different technique than what you use here. And the tackle's different and the reels are different. And so, um, but it gave me a, a well-rounded experience and gave me an opportunity to learn all these new techniques. And in your travels and the amount of uh, different fisheries you were able to fish, what would come to a close second as your favorite and feeling like home and feeling like you actually, well, you know, had something unique? You there? asked me two questions, my favorite and what felt like home. I'll tell you what, <laughs> <laughs> tell you what, what my favorite was. One of my favorites was we, we did an editor trip to um, the west coast of Florida, Inglewood, Florida, and, and the Charlotte Harbor area. And there was, at that time, there was just tons and tons of snook oh. and, and, and redfish in those waters. And... Uh, spotted sea trout as well mm-hmm. uh but we would i would went fishing with uh two a, a guide and his brother the bachniks one of them worked for mirror lure and the other one okay. was a guide it interestingly even though he worked for mirror lure it was all live bait oh and that fishery hinged so much on so that in that way it was a little bit like home you didn't actually go fishing until you had uh at the well tank full of yeah bait. wells were full of pilchards mm-hmm. and then uh it was shallow water, though. It was very shallow. You know, you would wading maybe up to your waist. So we'd go take the boat to an area, anchor out, get out of the boat. He'd give us baskets of bait with a spinning rod, and we would just wade along, pin, a, pin on a pilchard, throw it out. And while he kind of walked with us, and he would, like, chum, but by he would chum by putting two or three pilchards. Pilchards are these little herring, kind of like sardines, right. but they're, they're a little wider. And he would put two or three on a hook and then snap snap his rod and he would swing these pilchards out into these like holes. Like chumming. He was chumming, yeah, into these holes where the <laughs> snook were, and he would get those snook all worked up into a frenzy, and then we would just sit there and throw live baits at him and catch one. I mean, it wasn't unusual then to catch 100 snook a day. Holy oh, smokes. Yeah. They weren't huge, but we would catch a lot of them, and they were so much fun. And the funny part is, we would catch we would catch so many snook in in one little and when I say a hole I mean a, a maybe a depression that's a foot deeper than the rest of the water, huh. and we would catch so many, and then he'd say okay that hole's done we we're not going to catch any more, but we would like drift over it and we would look down in the hole, and there would probably be three hundred more snook that we oh had, my hadn't gosh. caught. <laughs> <laughs> wow! So you catch the ones that are you can kind of get whipped into a frenzy, and then the other ones that are too smart just don't bite. Right. But we did that. We would do that all day long there. And that, that was probably the funnest fishing I ever did was that kind of fishing. It was so. And then once in a while, you'd get a bunch of redfish that move, would move in. And uh, they would be so thick. I remember one time we, the redfish were coming at us, and he was chumming them in. And they were coming closer and closer, and we were hooking them. But then they just charged us. There were like three or four of us in a line. And the redfish, the school of redfish charged us. And as they, they ran so fast through us, they were running into our legs. Wow. They were hitting our legs with their nose. And they got hard noses. Mm-hmm. It was like somebody banging on your shins with a ball-peen hammer. Oh, And whoa, they were just, I mean, there was just there's acres and acres of redfish all around you. I mean, I like redfish. They, they fight hard. That doesn't do, sound yeah. bad at all. No, Except no, no. for when they might be knocking your shins out, but yeah. man. Well, you know, and it, it, they're fun too, but you know, when you hook a redfish, it's like setting a hook on a cinder block wall. You mm-hmm. know, it's just yeah. solid, you know, and they're, they're going to pull hard. But, you know, they, but they love the snook because, you know, you'd hook them, they would jump, they would run, they were, they, when they got close to you, they would dart everywhere. Mm-hmm. So the snook, were, the snook were the preferred uh, target for mm. us. How long ago was that? I think I did that back in the probably the late '90s is when we would do that. Wow! Yeah, mid, mid to late '90s, and, I, and you can still do it today. Mm-hmm. The the thing is when we because they were Suzuki pros and we had so we generated so much publicity. We took so many editors and they wrote so many nice stories about them that they got so popular that now you can't book them anymore. Oh wow! Yeah, mm-hmm. they're just like I I called them. I said, Hey, Eric, can we can we go fishing? I said, Oh, yeah, well. Let me get the calendar out for five years from now. Maybe, oh, maybe oh we can get gosh. you on. They, they have repeat customers that come in there and just fish with them all the time. 
That's so awesome. Yeah. Good yeah. for them, you know? Yeah. yeah. A it lot was. of it's like that out here, too, when there's good stories. And now it's a lot of video. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of videos help promote the, right. the guides and the and the certainly um, boats like uh, San Diego and the Pacific Queen with Cabin's Concepts. Like, those guys are doing a way uh, more video-heavy, you know, photography, like their own personal methods of getting their message out there. But to this day, if you're reading you know, a magazine like Saltwater Sportsman, and you're reading something like you wrote, which is about Lincod, you're getting so much more information out of a written piece like this, and I think a video can even get in a whole hour span um, to actually get videos and illustrations on how to rig these these um, uh, rigs like you have a dropper loop. You know, even for Lincod, people don't understand how to actually rig up a proper dropper loop, be able to come high enough off the rocks and the right weights, and you cover a lot of that in all of the magazines that you write for sport fishing mag saltwater sportsman and boring boating magazine which we're going to get into later because i think you have a lot of info to give out to some people that are listening so yeah yeah i I didn't even get into the where i work today i work for bunyer and as you mentioned i'm on staff for uh saltwater saltwater sportsman and sportfishingmag.com and and boating and it's uh I've been doing that for 11 years, and it's so much fun. And nowadays, I get to work out of my house. I get to write stories. I get to go fishing all the time. We're I'm, a lot of times I'm in Florida, by the way, testing boats. So we do we go to Florida oh. primarily to test boats, and uh, the boats nowadays that we test are just incredible machines. You know, mm. Multi outboard catamarans and deep V hulls. Uh, just that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it is a lot. Of <laughs> fun. I want that job. It is a lot of fun, and yeah, I, I do feel I do feel lucky and blessed to be able to do what I do, uh, and uh, and write about it. So, so what is um, your boat? What do you fish out of right now? I fish. I I don't have a multi outboard boat that's you know has, <laughs> has you know. 10,000 uh, gallons of fuel on board. That uh, might be warranted right now. <laughs> yeah. That might be a good thing. <laughs> yeah. But no, I have a, uh, uh, it, it's a, it's a boat I bought in uh, 1986. It's a Cabo 216. I call it the original Cabo it was built here in Southern California before Cabo Yachts was established, by the way. They were, uh, was out in Fullerton originally, and then they moved out to Corona. It's a it's a wonderful little boat, uh, Kevin. You you know that you you're familiar with the boats. It's got a Suzuki 200 on the back of it. it. Has two little. This is one thing that always amazed me about all the center consoles we have now. They're you know they're big, but they never have any sleeping quarters. That's on right. Them. This is a 21 and a half foot boat, and it has two six foot berths in the in the little cuddy cabin. It is amazing. It's just kind of a I'll say half ass cuddy cabin, but it's <laughs> a but it but it's it, you can get down there. My, you know, my wife and I slept down there. I take my boys out fishing. We've slept in there overnight at Catalina. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a wonder, uh, wonderful um, inter-island boat. It mm-hmm. is a very awesome machine to be able to go and it sleep is. on it. Sleeping out there, man, it just takes off so much of the edge when you're actually doing multiple days and right. you're on squid or something like that. So I yeah, do like that vessel. Yeah, and it's got a walk, full walk around, so you can fight. You know, you can fight a yellowtail all the way around the boat once you hook them. Or- or, or a big bluefin. Or a big bluefin, yeah, yeah. exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. I haven't taken it out to the 1,000-gallon banks yet to go fish for bluefin. but 1,000-gallon <laughs> banks. <laughs> That's a good one. That is a good one. But uh, we have fished them when they, when they moved in, you know, on the running gun stuff, and uh-huh. we've caught a few. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's been fun. I'm not an expert on bluefin, but I sure do like catching them. It's really cool to see. I, I, in the time that you have written and experienced Southern California. Have you ever seen anything like that since up until 2015 or never, never. I just, I read about the glory days, you know, of the, um, Avalon tuna club and catching the bluefin and how wonderful it was. I said, well, what happened to those fish? And now here, here they are now. Uh, we, we did a trip a couple of years ago. One of our, one of our properties for Bonnier is sport fishing television which is, um, you, can, you can catch it on YouTube. It's, it's on some other channels, uh, cable channels. But we went out and actually filmed an episode out on the uh, Cortez Bank a couple of years ago. Went out with uh, Captain uh, Brandon Donaldson oh, here okay. at the Lucky Bee Charters mm-hmm. and uh, went out there with Barry Breitenberg. So it was Brandon and Barry and uh, our film crew and me. I did end up doing a print story on it. We ended up doing a, a TV show on which I think it was a great TV show because it reflected on the old days of the bluefin, you know. Mm-hmm. We had some, you know, vintage photos and stuff and then reflected on what what we're doing nowadays. Uh, Brandon was incredible. Barry was incredible. And we ended up going out there for a one-day trip and ended up scoring 
four bluefin. Wow. From 125 up to 250. Holy pounds. smokes. Lost one, hooked a marlin. It was just Whoa. like it was just like one of those days when the stars aligned, flat calm conditions. Wow. And That's the perfect had, trip. We had alla- yeah. allocated two days to go out there because we were going to come back and overnight. We did come back and overnight at San Clemente. We said we were going to allocate a second day in there. Film cruises, we don't need anymore. We got it. Wow. We had huh. underwater footage. We actually got a drone shot of bluefin uh, blowing up on a on a flyer on the kite. So you can see the kite, you can see the flyer, you can see the bluefin come up and explode on the on the flyer, and we got it. I've got the footage on on for the TV show. We're gonna have that's, to dig that up. Yeah, that's yeah, gonna yeah. be awesome. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to find out and see the, see what that's like. Yeah. yeah, you got me fired up on it. Yeah, I want to yeah. see it. It was a it was a it was a fun show to to uh, it was a fun show to film and see. Excellent. Well, going, you know, going back to, you know, writing and everything, you got your degree in journalism and all that. What, you know, what kind of, you know, you write a lot of interesting articles and we've already discussed all the pictures that, I mean, I'm looking at it right now where you have so many, you have a diagram to how you're fishing lings all the time. What, you know, what, where does your inspiration to write those come from initially? Well, I think from being out on the water. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you don't, you know, if you don't get out on the water and you actually don't get out there and catch fish, you're probably not going to be a very good writer at it. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, I go out there and we catch fish. We take photos. I'm always, you know, I'm always shooting. I've got it, you know, with the SLR uh, as well as captaining the boat. But the, you know, the best inspiration comes from actually being out there and experiencing the action for yourself. Um, I mean, we, we come back and we have meetings and they, you know, they want to know, you know, what kind of stories I have to propose for the magazine. And I try to look at, you know, what's not being covered. Mm-hmm. What, what are the techniques that people don't know about and may benefit from learning more about and then, and then developing them? Now, I'll say this, that's because I know you, Chris, you're a, you're a party boat guy. I know you love party boats. Yeah. Kevin, you're a... Uh, kayak guy. Yep, there you, you go. Love <laughs> I'm I'm a private boat guy. Mm-hmm. We're so covering all of our bases. Here. That's right. <laughs> that's right. We go, we go, we're very inclusive here. Uh, <laughs> so I'm a party boat guy. I mean, excuse me, a private boat guy. I love getting out on the private on my boat and other other private boats as well, and learning how skippers fish on those private boats. That's really what what I'm all about. And I love doing that. And, and, I love, and then that extends into really loving boats and writing about boats. I mean, I write all kinds of stories about how to fix up boats, how to maintain boats, how to install things, electronics, as, we, as you mentioned earlier, Kevin. You know, I, 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 my boat is my hobby. So I'll go, you know, and, and I draw inspiration for fishing by going out working on my boat. You, know, when, well, you wouldn't think that working on your boat was a very fun thing, but... But if you put it in your mind, I am preparing my boat to go out and catch fish and have incredible experiences out on the water. And I want a reliable platform because that's my island while I'm out there. You just had a conflicting statement. You said reliable platform when we were talking about your own and anyone's boat. Man, that's such a hard it thing is. to get it together. Is. It, is. it is. Boats are, boat. you can ask my wife, boats are uh, a lot of maintenance, a lot of money. And especially if you have like mine, which is a 1986 boat. So I'm constantly out there, you know, fixing things, and mm-hmm. and I try to I try to do it. So it, you'd be surprised how really you'd think I'd be working on it all the time, but some of it's just kind of futzing around, you know. It's like it's a hobby. So it's in my backyard on a trailer. I have my workshop back there. I'll just go around and and work on things. But but yeah, there are there are a lot of work, you know, everything from the trailer, which I just had refurbished, to maintaining the motor, to rewiring stuff that gets corroded from salt. Salt water is a big enemy mm-hmm. of, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. of, of fishing boats. It's so a labor of love. It, it, it really it is. is. It is. It's, it's definitely labor. <laughs> 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 On a typical year, especially, you know, the last couple of years that we've seen such great fishing all throughout Southern California and so close to, how often are you typically getting out on the water? I, the last year was a bit of an exception. I didn't get out as much as I want, but uh, typically I like to get, I'm usually, I look at my logbook and it has me out on the water, usually between 40 and 45 days a year. 
So that's a little bit short of once every weekend, mm -hmm. but that's about how often I get. I mean, we have to stay home and do work once in a while, you know. Sure. So so we can afford to go boating, mm -hmm. but uh, but yeah, forty to forty five days a year is usually what I, when I go. But, you know, a big part of it is just finding people you know who who can go with me. Like mm -hmm. for my boys, I have three grown boys, and they used to go with me all the time. You know, I would just say, "Let's go fishing." They'd jump in the truck, and we'd hook up the boat, and we would go. Leave my wife at home because she didn't. She gets seasick and didn't want to fish. She's glad to get rid of us all. <laughs> so, uh, but we, that's what we do. But now that they're grown and moved, you know, two moved away. One's in Utah. One's up in Clovis. Uh, I have one that lives in Huntington Beach, and uh, he and I fish together quite a bit. Then I have some of my extended family. I have like his friend, uh, who is the son that I never had. <laughs> I, I take him uh, as well. So it's uh, once again, it's uh, like I said, I draw inspiration from being out on the water. And and having your boat, having that opportunity to go, not only fish with your kids and all that, but also to create those memories. That's got to be special for you oh, yeah. as a father. Yeah, yeah, definitely yes. I I a couple of years ago I put together a video just about all the memories and i i use the soundtrack the um uh I, memories is that not 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 the barbara streisand memories but the other one by oh. maroon five <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah it's 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 a great you know it's a great just to look back at the pictures you know and and see all the all the fun time we've had and all the fish we've caught you know and yeah it's 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 a that you know what to me, that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. I, some, somebody asked me, you know, what do you want to do for your birthday? I said, you know what I want? I want my boys to come into town. I want us all to go fishing and have a fun time and then come mm -hmm. back and have a nice dinner and celebrate. So uh, that's, what, that's what I enjoy doing the most. What else do you need? Yeah, you don't really need anything <laughs> else, you know? So when, when we all sit around the table and we have um, the questions come about, like, what is your – what's – What's um, time spent for you and what do you like to see or what, it, where, what have you done? I think it all comes down to, like you said, um, being with people that you love to go fishing with, you know, and, and definitely younger generation, whether it's your own you know, family or kids that are around you. I do share that, that same um, spirit of, of wanting to give people that, that uh, feeling, that sense of uh, bonding with the, the, the nature around them and being able to experience that with others. But, you know, while we're on uh, the subject of the future, you know, what do you think the, the biggest threat is for, um, let's say, my kids? You know, I'm, I'm 32. Am I 32? We're old, right, Chris? <laughs> yeah, very old. <laughs> According to many people, we're old. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, what is the, the threat of uh, my kids not being able to fish? Like, what can be done and what, do, what is CCA's part and your part in the story to come? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think that there's a movement afoot right now, um, kind of an environmental, um, how can I say, groups, groups that would not, would not allow access to fishing are, have instigated a, a, a movement called 30 by 30. And uh, for people who don't know what that means, it's essentially uh, the goal is to set aside 30% of all coastal waters and land, uh, protect it, uh, and we, we don't know what protect means at this stage, but to protect that by the year 2030, that's the 30 by 30 um, goal. It's happening at a federal level with um, uh, uh, President Biden signed an executive order to um, institute this program, and then uh, Gav Governor, Governor Gavin Newsom signed a, an executive order um, setting the wheels in motion to institute 30 by 30 here in California. Now, the 30 by 30 movement in California is much more draconian, we feel, than the federal movement. Um, it's not nearly as, it's not angler friendly uh, in our view at this, and when I say our view, I mean CCA California. It's not angler friendly, uh, specifically in their, what they call their uh, Pathways Forward document. Uh, the uh, California Department of Natural Resources has outlined that the best way to achieve this goal is to create more marine protected areas, no-take marine protected areas. They, they, they state this time and time again in their Pathways document. Lar larger than the ones that exist currently. Yeah, the Pathways document currently outlines, uh, says, states that only 16% of the coast is currently protected under their definition of protection. 
and those those areas are the marine protected areas. Um, they don't. They are the uh, the document does not include the national marine sanctuaries, which would increase that percentage far more, probably close to 30 percent, if we included the national marine sanctuaries. But the uh, but the document says that those don't count because they're not enduring in nature, and I'm not quite sure what they mean by that. I think. My personal belief is they just want more MPAs, and they're, they're, they're going to go through whatever means possible, they being the environmental groups, are going to go through whatever means possible, what an institute, whatever kind of definitions they want in order to achieve the goal of more marine sanctuaries, excuse me, more marine protected areas. So 16% um, currently is under, the, in the Pathways documents, considered protected. This the document was out for public review. I believe, Chris, the public review period is over now. Mm -hmm. um, not quite sure what the next steps will be on this because it is an executive order. The really crazy thing about this is that um, it will have all occurred because the governor, you know, with one stroke of the pen, decided he wanted, uh, wanted to uh, protect the coast and deny access to, to anglers and other enthusiasts. Um, we... Chris and I and you went through a process where we, uh, we fought 30 by 30 in the California legislature, and we won. We, we defeated a bill known as AB 3030. Uh, we were successful in that bid. That we had a, and then that's the process that it should go through. I don't care if it succeeds or it doesn't succeed. It should go through the legislative process. And we were successful. A lot of people worked very, very hard on it. Uh, Chris, I know you worked really hard on I it. I was just about to say, I had AB 3030 in my notes here. And to be brutally honest, Jim, Kevin, all of us on the marketing team at CCA, um, Bill Varney as well, um, everyone, almost all the state board members of CCA, we really had a lot to do with defeating that legislation. It's, I mean, not to pat ourselves on the back, but Jim, you were a huge part on the whole, mm -hmm. on the especially on the social media side as well, where we kind of... Um, for lack of a better phrase, carpet bomb Facebook, letting people know about this bill. And ultimately at the 11th hour, we defeated it. We did. We did. And there was a lot of also lobbying. A lot of Mark Aronick was, you know, was incredibly effective. Um, our lobbyist was incredibly effective. Um, so there was a lot of people working on this uh, and we would do, and, and we were ecstatic yeah. <laughs> that we were, that we, we, we had generated this groundswell of opposition and defeated in the legislature only to two weeks later have the governor ignore the will of the legislature completely and sign an executive order saying, I'm going to do it. I don't care what you guys say. And, I mean, there was a lot of a lot of different groups coming together, too, on, you know, not only on the fishing side, but the hunting side as well. All the different, that huge coalition that we kind of helped build, that was remarkable, absolutely remarkable. It was. It was. And so when you ask me what's the greatest threat, I think that's the greatest threat right now. I mean, there are other threats to good fishing. There's, you know, urban runoff. There's agricultural runoff. There's degradation of wetlands. Um, there's all kinds of issues. Uh, but the one that's going to deny access to uh, my kids and their kids and their kids, it will likely be 30 by 30 if we cannot, uh, if we cannot reach some agreement that we need to provide access. Because anglers are not the issue. They are not the issue. We... Right we take an infinitesimally small number of fish, uh, but somehow the environmentalists have it in their head that that's the problem. Right. And uh, I'm not quite sure why. Well, to be brutally honest with, you know, conservation is really good in theory, where we're all conservationists. The fishermen were the original conservationists. 30% con conserving and protecting, it's not a bad idea. It's bad when you do it a certain way. And that's what really, you know, not to speak for you, Jim, but that's really kind of what we're against is trying to do it in a particular way that locks everyone out. Right, right. So I think that, you know, what can you do right now? You know, I asked this question of Bill Shedd. I interviewed him on this one. What can you do right now? You need, everybody needs to join CCA California. That's the one arm we have. That's the one tool we have to work to preserve as much fishing access as possible. So if you're an angler out there and you're listening, um, visit, what's the website? Joinccaorg Yeah, so visit it. You know, it's... It's 35 bucks for the year. 35 bucks, yeah. I mean, it's cheap. 
Yeah. And if you're not, you know, I encourage everybody who come, I bring out on the boat, join CCA Cal. It's the best thing you can do, preserve fishing going forward. And I, I think people, you know, we've we said it a couple of times in podcasts, it doesn't just affect boaters. This is shore pounders. This is um, surf fishermen. This is, uh, it could even be freshwater people. It's a long stream of potentials for closures. And the more people that support in the community, aside from being a part of um, your own uh, part of the culture or part of the community, um, it affects everyone. The more people we can bring together, the better. Because there's a lot of fishermen in the state, you know, a lot. And uh, they all have a very important role to play, which is, you know, advocacy and making sure you're doing your best to be a conservationist and not let someone else tell you how to be a conservationist. That's right. That's right. And the crazy thing about the, the executive order, it talks about granting greater access, greater equitable access. Well, it seems to me the, the pathway forward right now is, is going to actually restrict access. So mm. I'm not quite sure what How? they consider equitable access. Right. So There's already a lot of, um, let's, just, let's just use an example. I mean, you live, um, you, well, you fish out of Long Beach. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I, Long yep, Beach. yep. All right. And you know that when, when you go along and walk maybe a boardwalk anywhere, there's a lot of no fishing signs. And I've kind of been preaching about this recently that fishing is becoming more and more of an um an out of bounds thought or culture that's trying to be countered and trying to be isolated and and removed eventually because why would they be putting up signs for no fishing when you're legally allowed to fish pretty much any public body of water that's not closed part of the mpa so Mm -hmm. Has me a little bit confused as as to what they're trying to do, but I think the agenda in general is to make fishing less um, easy. You know, uh, I, we talked about my travels around the country before, um, and it's not the it's not that way in Florida. It's not that way in Louisiana. It's not that way in the Carolinas. It's not that way in New Jersey or Texas or any of the places other places that I go. It's only in California that we have uh, this kind of, I, I won't call it an anti-fishing culture, but we, fishing is not culture here. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it is culture elsewhere. Absolutely. I mean, you go to Florida, you'll find streets named after fish. <laughs> and or, or and they're selling licenses and tackle from gasoline stations. Right. I mean, it's everywhere in Florida. Yeah, and they have, you know, fishing clothing is the is the garb of the day. I mean, you, you, mm-hmm. fish, you wear, you know, aft coast shirts. And, right. you, and you wear, you know, it's like, that's what everybody wears. And, and you, it's just, I mean, here at the Marlin Club is a sanctuary, and San Diego in general is a sanctuary for the fish, I think, for the sport fishing community. But elsewhere in California, as you go further up the coast, it is not a fishing culture. It's, I often think, well, what kind of culture is it? It's a, it's a, it's a car, movie, surf culture. And fishing is not considered part of it, which is incredible when you cons- when you think about the fact that big game fishing was born right here in Southern California. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but and uh, it still exists. There's still people doing it to this day, and the the amount of people that do it now is a lot more than it used to be. Right, so. right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's huge. It's mm-hmm. huge. I'm amazed. We I wrote an article for CCA here a while back about all the new people coming into fishing actually since kind of since the onset of COVID. But you have so many new people coming into fishing. So many, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's you know it's uh, it, it it's so popular and uh, and yet I don't I you know the what I want to call it the environmental elite don't consider it part of what California is all about. Jim, earlier you had mentioned about when we were talking about the AP uh, the the, the uh, advisory panel for Orhab, you know. You, uh, you know, the panel actually submitted all the, the list of names of scientists and all that, and um, Chuck Bonham, the director of DFW, um, took every single one of them. How important to you, and especially with this influx of new anglers and all that, how, how you know, in your opinion, how important is, is it for the department to have a great relationship with not only the anglers, but with organizations like us? It's extremely important, and I think they realize it. Mm-hmm. I they really do think they realize that the growing power of, of the angling community in California. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I don't work at the same level as our, you know, our governmental affairs chairman, committee chairman, Mark Gorelnik, but he, when I talk to him, he tells me that the Department of Fish and Wildlife and the Fish and Game Commission to maybe a somewhat lesser extent, 
believe that working with CCA is, is critical uh, to establishing, reestablishing trust in the department and the commission and uh, building, building better fisheries for, for Californians. I really, I really do believe that. What's interesting is when I had, I had a discussion with Mike Leonard from American Sport Fishing Association, because I was asking him about what's happening with 30 by 30 at the federal level, and he, and he said, well, it's much less, it's much more friendly to anglers, the, the, the federal level 30 by 30 uh, efforts. And uh, I said, well, why is that? And you know what he said? He said, because they saw what happened with AB 3030. The Biden administration took note that the anglers rose up and opposed AB 30 by 30, in, in, and they were very vocal about it, and that did not go unnoticed at the federal level. The wow. administration noticed it, and so they, in crafting the language for the federal 30 by 30 executive order, they were very, very careful to include anglers and sport fishing as part, as part and parcel of any um, conservation measures. That's pretty impressive. It is. It is. I mean, it makes, it makes us all feel good about that, yeah. doesn't it? I mean, the president said, oh, my God, look, at the yeah. anglers rose up and defeated AB 3030. We better take that into account. Mm-hmm. So, But then in California, it kind of fell on death there. <laughs> yeah, well, he didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you can tell where I stand on yeah. that. <laughs> can I segue into the educational part? Go for it. All right. Some hard questions coming. Okay. <laughs> Easy answers for you, I'm sure, all right? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, when, in your experience, and just to re- reevaluate your, your um, uh, clout and your positioning and your knowledge behind this subject, you know, marine electronics specifically, um, you do cover this in Boating Magazine. Um, you have regular contributions? I do, both in boating. I do a... a, a electronics column every issue and for saltwater sportsman i do an electronics column every issue so i'm constantly going and i on top of that i'm going to the the shows i'm going to i go to uh the miami boat show fort lauderdale boat show uh to ibex which is a trade show mm-hmm. um i'm going i went to uh, the palm beach boat show last year this year actually um and uh there are a few others that i that i go to so you're well well versed in what's available now and um, I think a lot of people get kind of um, um, intimidated when they go to any one of the marine electronics stores um, out there and they see the amount of options available. Um, with that being said, how do you get someone that's with something, a, a vessel, a private boat specifically, what is your recommendation to someone going to a store and setting up their very first fish finder or a marine electronics system? Mm-hmm. What kind of direction could you give that person? Well, I, I, m- part of it would depend on the size of the boat. I'd ask what the size of the boat is and what kind of fishing they want to do. Just so go with uh, what, what, something that you're used to, a 21-foot okay. <laughs> center console. There you go. Does it sound like I'm evading the question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what I would say is, um, first of all, um, Start with your with a multifunction display, and a multifunction display is simply a display that is able to be networked with a variety of marine electronics peripherals. Just like you have your computer hooked up to the internet, to um, to a printer, to other peripherals, your multifunction display will be hooked up to things like your radar, to your autopilot, uh, to your to. Uh, it may be hooked up to a sonar module. It may be hooked up. You may, you know, you may have a chart card that you put in there. I mean, my, I have a, I have a multifunction display, and I have way too much stuff hooked into it. But it, it handles it all. I have radar. I have AIS. Mm-hmm, I have mm-hmm. uh, uh, my my VHF is actually linked to it to in order to pick up uh, GPS data. Uh, my sound, my audio system's hooked up to it. Um, so. In that way, it's a very expandable system. So I would say first, you know, and and I don't think it matters whether you choose a Garmin or a Simrad or a Furuno or whatever you want. You know, Raymarine is the other brand that's out there. They're all good brands. It's like going to um, going to Best Buy and buying a TV. Mm-hmm. Look at them, <laughs> whichever one you like. You buy that TV, but make sure it is an expandable multifunction display so that you can network it with different things. They're expensive. There's no doubt about it. I but mean, but the, the, the um, multifunction display 
Is, is that is that right? What did I say right? Yes. That that is specific to an ecosystem within that brand, right? It is. Well, okay. to a certain extent, yeah. But yeah, I think you can by and large say that that you know it's going to be compatible. Only for example, if you buy a Garmin, it's only going to be compatible with a Garmin radar. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you buy a Simrad, it's only going to be compatible with a Simrad radar. Same thing with Furuno or Raymarine. Right. So, um, you know, w- w- whichever, you know, I, I'm not going to recommend a brand here. I just don't, I don't, you know, I think everybody's got their favorite. You know, there's so many guys who love Furuno and don't want to fish with anything but a Furuno. But Garmin's making huge inroads here recently. Mm-hmm. Garmin's are outstanding machines as well. Um, so, so a person's buying a part of their ecosystem. What is the first thing they buy? A fish finder, a radar, you know, VHF. What's what's the first things in a list? Well, they're gonna, if, if you're going to buy a multifunction display, usually it has two things built in, so you don't have to worry about those. It's going to have a radar, excuse me, a sonar or fish finder built in. Fish finder is the proper term, really. Mm-hmm. It'll have a fish finder built in, and it'll have a chart plotter built in. So, with those two items, you can go fishing. Right. You know, you can you you can see what you know you can see what's out there. You can navigate with it, and you can you can ping away. Now you're going to need a, a, a transducer, and a lot of those units come with a, a transducer. You know, as part of the package. Um, so Tran- transducer is the object, is the device that emits the signal, right, and detects all the imagery below you, whether or all the things below you, and creates imagery below you um, on the display, whether that's a rock a kelp strand or fish schools, right? Correct. And tells you the depth as well, mm-hmm, you know, right. the part and parcel of that. So it'll, it, you know, your transducer is going to, uh, it sounds, sends down sound signals. Those bounce off fish, the bottom, um, hard bottom, soft bottom. Uh, you know, learning to read that fish finder is, is you know, it's going to take some experience. It's a bit of, a, if you haven't done it before, it takes a bit of a learning curve. Um, I was lucky. I had a lot of people coach me in my early career. And I started with paper graphs, you know, like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you still have some of those? Yeah, no, I, I, I don't have them anymore. No, no I, I try to stay up to date. <laughs> so, yeah, so you're going to, so with the, with the, with the multifunction display that includes chart plotter, uh, uh, fish finder, and a, and a transducer, you're ready to go fishing. Mm-hmm. So I would say if you're a guy who, or a girl who likes to go out and fish um, relatively shallow waters, Go with a, a high-frequency transducer, um, like 200 kilohertz is good. But if you're somebody that's going to go out and and bang away trying to catch swordfish, you're going to need a low-frequency transducer. What's that the lowest you can go? You can go down to about 50 50 kilohertz. Is the the the, low, the, the lower the number, the lower the frequency. So you want to go with you know. Uh, and nowadays, it's all almost everything is chirp. And I don't know if we want to get into the definition of chirp, but chirp is a is a, a frequency range. So it'll go if you have a high frequency chirp transducer, it's going to go anywhere from 150 to 200 kilohertz. That's pretty high frequency. And, when, and the purpose behind that, if I'm not mistaken, is to avoid interference. Yeah, it basically filters out a lot of stuff that's in the water that you don't really need to see. For example, if I'm running a 50 kilohertz transducer, or you you said 150. Well, anyways, it doesn't matter and you're running a 50 kilohertz uh, signal as well, we're going to be hitting the same sound signal or close to, and we're going to get feedback between each other, that right? Can, that, that's our... called crosstalk. Sometimes that can happen if you're okay. too close to, if you're fishing too close to me. We might have other problems. <laughs> but, but, but essentially, yeah, sometimes it can, you can get what they call crosstalk. So if, you know, we're... we're, we're um, Side tied to next to each other, having lunch, and you're banging away with fifty, and I'm banging away with fifty. They're going to come back, and you're going to have crazy signals coming back. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, boats are farther far enough apart that doesn't. That's not an issue. But chirp does relieve some of this. It does. It okay. does. Mostly, it, it it really really defines the targets. So I mean, so much so that it, I, even I am amazed sometimes. I mean, I can see, I can watch. I can work a jig along the bottom, and I can watch. I can watch that jig bounce along the bottom, is right under the boat. Hmm. It's um, it chirp is amazing, and and the the higher quality chirp, the better. So you want you don't want to, you know, you don't want to cheap out. Um, we'll go back to what we were discussing earlier about which transducer I use right now. I have a Airmar, and Airmar uh, B one seventy five HW. Now that's a high frequency transducer uh, it's a through hole 
mm-hmm. tilted element through hull, and it it pings at 150 to 250 kilohertz and uh, and uses a 25 degree cone angle. Now the reason I like that is because I was having a hard time uh, finding tuna when we were out on the tuna grounds, and that wide cone angle not only gives me really good definition uh, when I'm fishing structure because I'm a structure fisherman too. I go out and fish rock piles for rockfish and lingcod and bass and things like that. But it also is wide enough that I can see these tuna going through that cone angle. Right. And I can't tell you how many times what they talk about stopping on, stopping on uh, sonar marks. We've been just out trolling, and, and all of a sudden some marks will come up under the boat. And I said, stop, you know, they're here. And, uh, you know, n- so much so that while I'm reeling in the jigs, the tuna come up and hit the jigs, the trolling jigs. And so um, I couldn't do that with my my non-chirp transducer it just wouldn't mark tuna very well it is a big ocean and the more success you have with seeing things underneath the water using a fish finder the better off you are right guaranteed yeah the wider the wider the cone angle the greater the coverage the more fish you're going to see there is a sacrifice you will you know certain structure edges will not be as well defined but i i haven't found that to me a major disadvantage so far Hmm. I, in fact, I, I wouldn't go back to a narrower cone angle uh, if you asked me to. Right. Yeah. And, and you described cone angle just now. I don't think you mentioned that before, but that is a big part of your decision when picking a transducer. Um, I like to use the, the ice cream cone example mm-hmm. for, for my description of what a cone angle might be. So what I, and you can tell me if I'm off, so I'd like to be able to tell you. That's, what I, that's, what I, that's good. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's an inverted ice cream cone. Right, so I tell exactly inverted one where the mm-hmm. bottom of it is turned towards the sky, right, and then the the wide side is facing towards the ground, right. And so if you if a person can imagine themselves being a boat and they're sitting on the surface of water, and that cone uh, that ice cream cone is put right up to the bottom of the boat where the transducer is coming from, emitting uh, the sound. The wider angles will be more to the shape of, or more towards the the span of a. Um, uh, or sorry, the, the, the higher frequencies will be more the shape of a sugar cone where it's short and fat. Right. And so you'll be able to read things in shallower water with greater definition, but you're not going to be able to reach out 150 feet or yards or whatever it may be that cone on the on right. wide and lower frequency cone angle, which would be more like a sugar cone where it starts very small, or waffle cone, sorry, very small at the tip, pointy, and goes way deeper and, and wider at the base. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And and you, you very apt description, Kevin. That's exactly what the cone angles are like. Very good. Nice. I I also like to if you, if, if you're uh, one one way I like to differentiate high frequency from low frequency. Low frequency is for deep water. Imagine you're listening to imagine you're listening to your audio system in your car or somebody else is listening to their audio system in their car and they've got it cranked up about the only thing you can hear with all the windows and doors closed is that bass. bass. That's right. It's booming through the car. You can hear it. That's the low frequency. And that, that's what you want when you're trying to uh, reach down deep and see bait and the bottom and swordfish. And if you're deep dropping for rockfish sometimes. You right. Know, that, but on the other hand, the high frequency is, are, is the treble. You know, you you get you, when you get in the car, you hear a lot of the detail in the in the melody and the and the voice and the lyrics. You can pick up all the detail, but you can't hear it from from here while the while that car is closed. You have to be closer. That that gives people a lot more perspective on how sound might work underwater. I think you got you hit that right on the head, and that that gives me a way better more a per, better perspective on how that sound goes yeah. through water for yeah. sure. And tr- and sound actually goes through water pretty well, doesn't it? It does. Water is more dense than air, so it. Uh, sound travels through water more quickly and uh, faster than it does in air. Hmm. Yeah, so it, it's uh, it, it takes a lot to understand a fish finder, I think, but um, certainly someone can read a, a, a number of your articles on Boating Magazine, I'm sure. Um, can someone get pointed to a specific uh, piece of literature that you wrote any time recently? Well, I don't have any books, but I'll tell you what. If you go to... Um, there are, two, there are two really good sources online. You can go to um, saltwatersportsman.com, uh, and my, you'll find my, all my electronics columns there, and I cover a wide range of topics, including the one we just talked about, mm-hmm. what's the best frequency. Uh, I've also done stories on how to tune your fish finder to see fish better. 
Wow, that that huh. is so man. That's going to be so varied upon <laughs> each person, though. I'm sure that you that probably was a very difficult you know article to write. It's interesting because you know nowadays with the fish finders that we have, they have auto modes. Uh huh. Right. And you know, if you just leave it in auto most of the time, you'll you're, be okay. You're pretty darn close <laughs> to what you need. Uh, I mean, yeah. you can fine tune it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's you know that's kind of what I say is you know the auto mode you know don't don't fool around too much because the auto mode's gonna they they've dialed it in really well the mm-hmm. manufacturers have now there are, and then then I go into some manual modes if you want to really if we really want to play around with free, with uh, tuning your fish finder uh, which involves basically turning the sensitivity which is the how much or gain what they call mm-hmm. the sensitivity turning all the way up so that you completely black out the screen with with junk, signal, lots sig- of signals, stuff. lots yeah. of signals, and then just gradually turn it down, turn it down, turn it down until you just barely turn tune out all the junk, and you, then you've probably got your sensitivity set just about right. It's kind of like the same concept with your VHF radio too. Mm-hmm. Squ- mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. use that example. Yeah, yeah. the squelch. You know, mm-hmm. you turn the squelch all the way all the way down. You hear all this clutter and everything, mm-hmm. and then you just kind of dial the squelch up a little bit until it just barely goes away. And then, yep. then it's right, right on. So, you know, one thing that's kind of controversial where, you know, if you're on or if you're not the only person to drive a, a particular boat, it drives <laughs> me crazy <laughs> when someone I have it all dialed in and then the next guy just changes everything. Right. And all that. There's right. got to be some unwritten rule about that one. I was actually I was talking to Barry Breitenberg <laughs> the other day about that because he he goes out, you know, he does he's a captain for hire. So he'll mm-hmm. go out on a lot of boats and he says, I really don't like to touch the fish finder because mm-hmm. as soon as I do, the, the, I'll go, you know, on the next trip, they go, what did you do to my fish finder? Uh, made it better. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing is, well, I remember one trip. You know, you have to remember between trips because uh, even on your own boat, like I went out fishing. We went out deep dropping for uh, daytime swords on my mm-hmm. boat, and I, in order to try to, I don't have a low frequency on my boat right now, so I turned that sensitivity all the way up. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and then uh, I'd like the I forgot that I did that. And then uh, the next trip, I was fishing relatively shallow stuff, like, you know, 90 to 100. <laughs> like, what's wrong with this Whoops. fish? Like, what? Who's been messing around with it? Uh-huh. Well, it was me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I use the same concept. Whenever I see a fish finder on another boat, I'm like, just don't, you don't ever touch another man's fish finder. Yeah, yeah. At it's least just the like, looks like you don't park in their driveway, you know? That's yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jim, yeah. one more question for me. Um, sure. You know, for when it comes to, and I apologize if you've already answered this, but when it comes to basic fish finders and, and sonars and all that, generally when you're looking at marks on the screen, how far back are they typically, on average, behind the boat? Um, well, they're history. If you, it depends on how fast the boat's moving. Right. You know? uh, but they're going to be history. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you got to kind of... Um, you know, usually they're, you know, they're they're fairly close. You know, it, like I'll give you an example. We'll be. I have some really deep stones I like to fish, and but they're little tiny spots. I mean, I'm talking no bigger than your truck. Okay. And so, it's pinpoint fishing. So you have to, and and so you have to. Soon as you see it, you know you've almost you've already passed part of it. So basically, I kind of like as soon as I see it, I just I just I pull the boat out of gear and give it a little pop and reverse, mm-hmm. and I say, okay, guys. Uh, bombs away, yeah. and so the, the and we're talking about you know, 100 feet, 120 feet, something like that. So usually I can tell if I'm still on it or not by turning on a function called a scope, uh huh, yes. amplitude scope right. is what it's called, and that is instantaneous. So it's not history anymore. It's showing you exactly what's under the boat. So if you turn on that a scope, you can figure out exactly. If there's hard bottom or there's fish under, the, it's kind of like the old flashers. You're right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, that's one thing I like. I don't know if any of the boats you fish out on have a scopes. Some of them. Uh, but I think a scope really, really works well because then you don't have to guess if you're still on the spot or you're behind the spot or not. Um, the other thing is, is you've got. We talked about cone angle here. You know, with that cone angle, you're just kind of getting in the really in the ballpark. You don't know exactly where you are. You might be mm-hmm. on the edge of that spot. And and think you're right on top of it, 
So, you know, sometimes I miss and we're like, oh, bring me in, guys. We're going to spin around and get back on this. Mm -hmm. So, and same thing with anchoring. You get, you know, you want, when you're anchoring, you know, you want to know pretty much where the spot is. And a lot of times you come back and you might be close to it, but you don't know. You're just on the edge of it. So, you mm -hmm. know, that's why I have a windlass. Mm. We just yeah. pull the anchor up and re-anchor on the spot. I'll tell you that for me, using the A-scope and watching yellow swim through it is just about, or tuna, just gives me the biggest freaking rush ever. <laughs> you're just watching like it's a video game, like what all people say, and you're just looking, looking, and you're like, you know, for me, it's pedaling around, or, you know, sometimes I'm on skipjack, and all of a sudden I see it, and I go, and it's kind of funny, because when you're first seeing it, and it's been a while, you're mm -hmm. like, that can't be. That can't be it. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're like, uh-oh, here yeah. it comes. And you're dropping, everyone's dropping jigs or you're getting baits out. And um, and now with this bluefin stuff, um, with an A-scope, and they just so happen to swim back through if you stopped on a school and they right. come back and check the boat out, if you've delivered a flyer just at the right time, you can see the things start to charge up sure. at the boat. And you're just like, oh, my God, it's coming. <laughs> that is a rush. Yeah. That's, that sounds great. Yeah. It's coming. They're getting them. They're, yeah, they yeah. just, uh, who got, uh, Old Glory just Old got Glory, a 150 pounder or something like that. It was a big one. Yeah, something like that. And they got uh, limits of yellows, yellowtail. Yeah. Man, yeah. it's it's coming. It's pretty yeah. crazy. In March. Yeah. Mid-March. I wow. was going to say. That's 2022. Crazy. We have to make sure we get the dates out now, too, so we can have yeah. an archive eventually, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Episode 100 is going to be very interesting. Oh, get around <laughs> so what episode is this? This uh, is number 11. 11. 11. Okay. Yeah. Lucky yeah. 11. Mm -hmm. I, like, I like it. Yeah. Little little ways to go till So 100, 111. But... We'll have you back on yeah. for your right. centennial. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. We're so, we're definitely have you back on sooner. You know, you you have so much knowledge. I think a lot of people need to read up on mm -hmm. everything that you've written in the past and and all your new stuff you've coming out. You literally just wrote a, an amazing Lincoln article in Saltwater Sportsman. Um, that's in the March issue, 2022. People should definitely check this out. Um, I think that there's so much more, and you, I'll just give a little secret out without people. I would, I mean, you should go buy us to see it yourselves, but there's a sand dab is literally a, a, a yep. bait listed in here. Yeah. You show people how to rig sand dabs and you, I mean, that's very interesting and unique. I haven't oh. seen that in very many articles. Lincoln loves sand dabs. Mm -hmm. I'm, I was like amazed. I don't know if they like venture, like there's a little wreck we fish. Well, it's kind of actually a big wreck, about 175 feet of water and it's good for, for lingcod, but if we're not catching them, I said, let's jig up some sand dabs and let's move off the edge of the wreck. I think they kind of cruise around the base of the wreck, mm. looking, looking yeah. for bait and scooping up those sand dabs. But but you put down, you'd think they would like, yeah, I don't know, that's that's not moving. It looks kind of gross, but they <laughs> they gobble them down. It's, I bet it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's very cool how you show it rigged in this article. And um, I'm does does some of this uh, come from uh, some inspiration, some in education you've had in here? Come from maybe fishing Alaska or the Upper Northwest or anything? No, not too much. No, I mean I fished I fished the Pacific Northwest. I haven't fished Alaska. I'm going to go up there this summer. My plan we plan to go up there and fish. But no, mm. you know what? Most of it comes from you know experience on the water and and some people who. Now, trying to learn as I try to learn as much as I can. I, my theory is I'm a student on the water. I don't. Mm -hmm. I always learn something mm -hmm. new. I always see something new uh, every time out, and I always listen to other people who have advice for me on on how to catch fish. Because you can never, you know never, you should all. never stop learning yeah, as yes. an angler. Never mm -hmm. stop. And I've, I've been fortunate. I've had some top anglers in the world, uh, in at least locally helped me out. Uh, people like Mark Wish, who was wrote a couple of three books on various kinds of fishing. Um, he and I fished together early in my in my fishing career, and he taught me so much about marlin and white sea bass and yellowtail and rock fishing. Um, he was just he was just a, he was a, he was a tough taskmaster, but he taught me well. <laughs> and uh, uh, I fished with Gary Adams on the rail time as a charter boat out of Huntington Harbor. Gary is incredible white sea bass fisherman. Just he's forgotten more than I think I'll ever know about white sea bass. He taught me so much. Uh, if you ever get a chance to fish with Gary Adams on the rail time, do it. He's a he's a he's a really good guy. He's got a great boat, and uh, 
He doesn't do many charters, but those that he do, that he he uh, when he is out, he catches the fish. That's awesome. Yeah. Jim, you have such a great um, wealth of knowledge about fishing in general and, and all that. I think you just answered my question, but I'll ask it again. <laughs> what, you know, do you have any general, you know, when people give you life advice or whatnot, do you have any general advice for someone, a, maybe a Grom or anyone younger, um, trying to be at least more successful at fishing or any aspiring writers out there that, uh, that can kind of carve their own little piece in this industry? Well, if you're, if you're an aspiring writer right now, I think, and I won't say writer, I'll say content person nowadays because mm-hmm. writing is, you know, is important. But there's so many opportunities to create content, and you see a lot, you know. You see people who are, have, uh, well, there's podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, um, you know, there's all kinds of Instagram pages. There's, there's YouTube, YouTubers doing stuff. I think... You know, um, you, you need to approach it with enthusiasm, uh, and and you want to be able to serve um, the interests of anglers who want to catch more fish. Mm-hmm. And there's, I think, you know, sometimes there's a tendency to want to just, you know, um, you know, puff out your own chest and tell everybody how great you are and show them all the fish you you can catch. I think the important thing is that's that gets people's attention. There's no doubt about it. But I think the important part is. You know, develop your skills in content creation, whether it's writing or it's photography. Video is really, that's that's the wave of the future. Video is where it's at. Uh, and in, you know, social media skills, you know, develop all that and then provide content that makes makes people want to uh, want to watch you and not just say, oh, he's, he's just bragging about all the fish he catches. So that's what I would say. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have... A YouTube page. I'm not, mm-hmm. and I'm. I, I just. I'm basically. I do a few videos, but I'm not a. I'm not a big YouTuber. But that's the wave. That's. It's clear, that in this today's media landscape, that's the wave of the mm-hmm. future. That's that's amazing advice. Someone who's listening out there, who's you know my age or younger, or maybe um, maybe way older than me, should who's who's got a passion behind creating video content or any relevant content with social media nowadays they really should have a passion behind it and and see the benefit of exposing people to their lives and to make it fun. Right. right. Make it yeah. fun. Make it fun. Make it inclusive. Get every, you know, get people involved. Make it, you know, not not just about yourself. Not, you know, it's all about helping other anglers catch fish, I think. Right. Jim, this was great, man. Thank you so much for coming. This is uh, this was awesome. Yeah, yes, I had you. fun. I had fun. Thanks for inviting me. Maybe you'll have me back someday. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hopefully before the centennial. Yeah, mark. before the centennial <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Jim, one more time. How do we follow your work? How do we get a subscription? All that stuff. So um, saltwatersportsman.com is a great website. You can visit. There's great fishing articles, not just my articles. There's all kinds of great writers on that page. Oh, excuse me, on that website. Um, sportfishingmag.com, another one where we have lots and lots of good content uh, uh, from all over the country. Uh, uh, there's boat reviews as well there and then boatingmag.com is the other one to visit you can subscribe there to the magazine but all the content that you'll want to want to see is right there and uh, available and free very cool very cool man kevin any last words man as always it's wonderful to be here we have great guests every single week if anyone's out there looking for more information about fishing and how to protect your future with fishing you should be listening to cca podcasts every week Join as a member. Make sure you participate in your local chapters and grow, grow fishing. Start with taking kids out. Go out there, enjoy fishing for yourself and for the future generations. Um, We'll be back here next week with another great guest, I'm sure. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thank you guys so much for joining us, and we will see you guys next week. Take care, everyone.